Welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard. I am Director of ECFR. And this week, we're going to talk about India, its politics and its relationship with the European Union in the context of the upcoming EU-India Leaders Summit. And at a time when India has become a new epicentre of the coronavirus. In an interesting piece published by the Financial Times this week called The Unmaking of India, Ramachandra Guha argues that the pandemic has in many ways brought into sharp focus a more existential crisis for India, namely the the creeping erosion of its democratic traditions and values. What we want to find out today is uh, a bit more about what the political climate is in the world's largest democracy, how the pandemic impacts on India's geopolitics, and what are the prospects for a closer EU-India relationship. I'm happy to welcome Frédéric Grar, who is a senior policy fellow with the Asia Programme at the European Council on Foreign Relations, Raja Mohan, who's the director of the Institute of South Asian Studies at the National University of Singapore, as well as a columnist on the Indian Express. And uh, finally, we have Manisha Reuter, who is ECFR's Asia Programme Coordinator, and she follows EU-India relations very closely as well. Thank you all very much for joining. Why don't we start with this catastrophic situation around the coronavirus in in India? It's a really sad backdrop to the the EU-India summit and something that I think has, has really shocked many people in India who felt that the corona crisis was was under control in their country and they were very uh, relieved that it hadn't had too bad a consequences in the in the first wave but nowadays we can see world records being set for the for the most number of cases every 24 hours and while cases have surged the political impact is also coming through prime minister modi was on the campaign trail throughout the last few weeks spoke at big rallies in different parts of the country, he had a big defeat in, in the West Bengal regional elections, but he still made gains in other parts of the country. And it feels like a time of political as well as geopolitical turmoil that this, this crisis is hitting us in. So maybe we can start with you, Roger. Can you tell us how you assess the current political climate in India and what that means for India's relations with the rest of the world? Thank you, Mark. It is a grim crisis, uh, and it's affected all the major cities, including the capital city. Even uh, you know this continuing to clock uh, close to four hundred thousand new cases uh, every day, and the best expectation is that uh, the peaking will take place sometime uh, later this month. And the crisis has exposed the state capability and the weak public health uh, systems. And the surge was just so much that, that, that the system could not just, uh, just not cope with it. Uh, but we've also seen, I think, a strong uh, emergence of uh, solidarity within the society, uh, the rise of the civil society trying to cope with this, uh, with this tragedy. Will it have political consequences? Uh, of course, it will have. Uh, it is certainly a setback to uh, Prime Minister Narendra Modi. And uh, he will have to respond to the anger and the anguish uh, across the cities, which means uh, much of the Indian middle class, which has been a strong supporter of his, is angry. And so far, he has not addressed the nation. But my sense is uh, he's a fighter, so he will find ways to adapt to this. Uh, that takes me to two questions. Mark, you mentioned 
Indian democracy, those elections that were held with mass rallies was unfortunate. But Modi has lost in most of those popular states. He won one state, but he lost the three other big states. So I don't see the, the, the claims of Indian democracy is dying, I think, are somewhat premature. Uh, these elections have shown uh, that India's fundamental structure is so diverse uh, that there will always be pushback at too much centralization. So my sense is, uh, if Modi is smart, I mean, he will begin to adapt uh, to, the, to the reality on the ground. And uh, he will also have to pacify the Indian uh, middle class once he brings the crisis under control. But there is also the larger question that comes up, which is that Modi's argument that, look, India needs to move away from state-led economic activity to actually state taking a larger role uh, in constructing a credible, sustainable welfare structure in the society. Uh, most of his opponents don't agree with that policy, but my sense is uh, they should accelerate the reform because without reducing the bloated state sector, uh, India will not have the resources to fund a really a large public health uh, system and larger social sector investments that India needs to make. So my sense is I'm still optimistic that once we get over this crisis, uh, this is going to further push uh, the reform path that Modi has unveiled. And he will have to accommodate the others in the Indian society. And it can't be treated as that he can run everything uh, from Delhi. So I want to come to Manisha and, and Frédéric about the relations with the EU, but maybe you can give us a bit of a bridge to, to that, Roger, by looking also at, at how Modi is dealing with the new sort of geopolitical context. Because over the, the last few years, we've seen quite a dramatic shift, I think, in terms of how the Sino-Indian relationship is playing out and with sort of uh, physical hostilities across the border, but also uh, quite different policies when it comes to, to thinking about managing trade and, and above all technology relationships between the two countries. Yeah, I mean, if you summarize the, the foreign policy developments in the last uh, couple of years, I mean, I think one has been the growing tensions with China. Uh, that is, uh, as you mentioned, uh, there was this conflict on the, on the border last year, and there's no signs of it actually being uh, resolved. So the Indian claim to be partnering China to build a more democratic world order, I mean, that uh, tatters some more. And at the same time, India's engagement with the U.S. and the West has significantly improved in the last few years. The, the construction of the Quad and uh, deeper bilateral defense cooperation with, uh, with the U.S., marks, I think, a fundamental shift of India towards a closer relationship with the West, while in the past uh, it was unwilling to recognize the challenges uh, from, from China. So the shift has taken place. Unfortunately for Modi, these weeks would have been actually a triumph of uh, you know, engagement with the Western institutions. Uh, both uh, his visit to London and we had the summit was planned uh, between the two leaders that had to be, you know, now, I don't know whether he'll actually make it to the G7 summit uh, and to the European summit, uh, which, is, which is already cancelled, which is uh, supposed to take place this, this weekend. So I think the moment where India would have been seen as joining the, the Western uh, partners in constructing a new order, uh, unfortunately, the crisis has pushed that back. But uh, both the UK digital summit that took place this week, uh, as well as the Europe summit, I think we lay out a new framework for a deeper cooperation between uh, India and the UK, India and Europe, uh, and uh, India and the United States uh, that we'll see uh, in the G7 uh, plus format. 
So Manisha, I'd love to hear from you about the how you see the EU-India summit shaping up and what the issues on that are. But maybe before we do that, Frédéric, can you talk a bit about the, the sort of shift in, how, in terms of how Europeans are thinking about India in the context of, of all of the discussions we've been having about Indo-Pacific strategies, both uh, at an EU level as well as within different member states? Well, first of all, it's difficult to say how Europeans are thinking about India. First of all, because the India, the interest for India or the India concern for some uh, has always been the case, the, the, something of specific states and not of all states together. Part of the problem that we meet in the Indo-Pacific strategy and the celebration is precisely because not every one of the 27 members of the union feel the same way about the need to engage in the Indo-Pacific. Now, this is a fact that the EU wants to engage India deeper uh, for the reasons that Raja mentioned earlier, which are that uh, there is a sense that there is a growing convergence of interest between India and the EU when it comes to China, although none of the entities probably say in those ways, but they are still, the two entities are still looking for ways to cooperate with one another. India is always more comfortable dealing with individual states, whereas the EU doesn't really know how we should interact, is not ready to compromise on a number of things which are uh, key to India. And uh, that's probably what we'll see happening again in the summit this week. Although there is also a growing realization on the part of the EU, a fear that somehow one Asian economic bloc might be in the making and that they'd better settle their relationship with India in a better way in order to prevent that and, and not be absent from uh, what is uh, unquestionably in, in a shift towards the, uh, towards the East. Great. Thank you. So, Manisha, you've been looking at EU-India relations for a long time. What, what do you think the kind of scope is for a reset from the new geopolitical realities which Roger and Frédéric have just described? Yeah, thank you, Mark, for the invitation. I think um, both of my previous speakers have laid it out pretty well that the India-EU relationship is an unfulfilled one. And the external parameters that have shifted in the last year, especially under the pandemic, but with Brexit, which was the natural starting point for for, um, India in the EU, um, in the UK, but that's not there anymore. So and that's one parameter. And the other parameter that has shifted is China that uh, Raja has already mentioned. So I think um, there are reasonable hopes that the relationship will speed up and will go to a next level. But that hasn't happened yet. So the last EU summit in um, last year in the summer was all about China, which tells us that China is a big factor in that relationship. There have been talks about trade negotiations and picking up that sluggish FTA that has been neglected for quite some time. And we were hoping to see at the summit that the trade issue and the climate issue were two, the two big parts of the agenda in the EU-India summit. So um, we have to wait and see how that plays out. But so far, there hasn't been much done on the trade angle. So, Roger, you talked about how there's been a kind of realignment, you know, India has has become much more closely aligned with the US, with the Quad, with democratic nations. And, I mean, you've been writing for many years about, about the kind of shift from the Nehruvian morale politique to a more kind of realpolitik 
perspective and a, and a kind of new alignment and have written so eloquently uh, over the years about the relationship with the US. How far do you think that can go? And particularly on, on some of these issues where India has traditionally been a, a sort of mega spoiler from a Western perspective, like tr- trade and climate change. I mean, India was obviously uh, instrumental in killing the Doha rounds, has always been one of the the most reluctant states when it comes to global climate negotiations. Um, are those things which are going to shift now that China has become uh, a scarier geopolitical threat to India? Yes, I think on both the issues, uh, the changes in India's approach uh, have been evident uh, under the current uh, government. Uh, on trade, uh, having walked out of the RCEP, which is the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership in Asia, which is essentially a China-centered uh, Asian economic integration. Uh, India walked out of it at the end of 2019. But today, India realizes, uh, having walked out of that Asian arrangement under the Chinese leadership, it needs to work closer with the West, and it needs some kind of a trading uh, cooperation with the West. In fact, this week, we've seen in the digital summit between UK and India, uh, they've agreed on, a, on a, you know, an enhanced trade partnership uh, hopefully, this will lead to some kind of an FTA uh, down the road by next year. So I think India recognizes the strategic importance that India needs partners and that it can no longer sustain the old policy of being very unfriendly when it comes to trade. The negotiations will be hard with the uh, UK and with Europe, but I think the direction of trying to do more on the trade front with, with both European partners has increased. On climate change, I think there's been a significant evolution of India's position in the last few years, uh, both in terms of India's, instead of uh, being the one which says no, uh, it is saying yes, probably yes, but that if you see the climate change policies, India today wants to be a part of the solution. It is looking at a dramatic expansion of its uh, renewable energy, contribution of the renewable energy to its overall energy mix. Uh, It has worked with France and other nations in building international solar alliance. So my sense is that India is not going to accept uh, some kind of, uh, you know, give us a year by which you get to carbon zero, uh, net zero uh, on the carbon emissions. But I think it will be open to a significant areas of cooperation with the West. And what we saw during John Kerry's visit to India a few weeks ago uh, was that India and the U.S. today have set up a group and that the U.S. can wait to finance India's green transition. Uh, there could be a deal there, but my sense is uh, that is being explored. So I'm, I see that, that that down that road, we might see uh, something coming out of that in terms of how India and the West, India and the US, India and Europe can, can work together uh, on uh, climate change issues. So both on trade and on uh, climate change, uh, there is progress, but it's really on the security side. I'm sure we're going to talk about it, where uh, India is far more open today uh, for collaboration uh, with the West. And again, on the India-UK summit, we saw security uh, take a a prime place and that India, uh, after years of saying, look, we don't like the European or the colonial powers to come back into the Indian Ocean, India now sees the former European colonial powers as important partners in structuring uh, a stable balance of power system uh, in the East. So I want to go into more detail on the security front. But before we do that, maybe we can just go a bit deeper on the trade front, because trade has been central to Europe's relationships with many Asian countries. 
And with India, things are moving forward very, very slowly. I mean, at the moment, the EU is India's largest trading partner. It's accounting for about 80 billion euros worth of trading goods in 2019, which is about 11% of, of, of total Indian trade, which is similar roughly to the US and China. But India is only the EU's 10th trading partner. It has less than 2% of total trading goods with the EU in 2019. And this FTA, which you talked about, Roger, has been on the agenda since 2007. So it's not exactly um, moving forward at a kind of turbocharged pace. And it doesn't look like there has been a huge amount of progress recently. I mean, what, what are the barriers? Manisha, why do you think that it's been so hard to move forward on the trade front? Well, I think that, I mean, India is a difficult trading partner. That's what's why there's no FTA with the US, for example. It's not just Europe, but India is a difficult trading partner. And at the same time, the EU is very much focused on trade in its relationships with Asia. So I think this is a two-way problem. On the one hand, I think the EU must focus less on trade in general with its relationship with India and focus more on India as a strategic partner in the region and on the security issues that Raja has touched upon. And on the other hand, India has, I mean, this is this is sort of very detailed trade issues, but India has very high tariffs and it's very difficult for businesses to settle down in India. So I think there have been many, 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 many reasons for this FTA not to have taken place yet. Uh, which are related to visa issues and tariffs. And it's so it's a very complicated, long, long story. But I think the bottom line here is that we can cooperate with India on a strategic and pragmatic approach and focus on that rather than focusing what has gone wrong in the last 10 years. Thanks a lot for that. Now let's move on to security, which Raja mentioned. Uh, I want to hear a bit more about some of the things you've written recently about the prospects for engagement with NATO from an Indian side. But maybe before we do that, we could talk to Frédéric. Frédéric, you've been working in the French Ministry of Defence for a long time, looking at security issues in this part of the world. What scope do you think there is now for kind of deeper engagement around security between the Europeans and, and India? It's not clear because a number of European states are not clear about what they want to do in the Indian Ocean, for example, or even further in the Indo-Pacific. Look at the number of states which are committed boats, for example, to follow-ups or to just operation within the Indian Ocean. Look at the difficulty, for example, of having the pilot project, which is currently conducted in the Gulf of Guinea, of maritime permanent presence to be shifted to the Indian Ocean. And you'll see that this is far from being obvious for everyone. So what we're likely to see is a continuation and probably, and this is already happening, an intensification of the relationship between India and the European member states, which we're already cooperating with India on security matters. And new New entrance in a way. I mean, the fact that Germany is sending a ship soon to the Indian Ocean is a sign that it wants to be part of that game too. And if you've read the Tribune by uh, for a German Foreign Minister Ecomas recently, there is clearly a willingness to be present there. And I believe that Germany will do anything it takes to uh, get into closer relation with India on that front. 
Now, the two entities, again, needs to be realistic behind the reluctance of many states. There is not just a question of interest. There is also a question of capacity. There are many things that uh, can be done by the European Union, which so far are uh, not really considered because we are talking almost exclusively about protecting the sea lanes of communication. But we have to shift from a perspective which is protecting the routes to protecting the spaces. That opens a whole space for cooperation of a different nature, protection of the exclusive economic zones and so on, of the little state, cooperation for capacity building, or at least coordination for capacity building in the area, which is a way to substantially contribute to that. And these are fields which are not yet sufficiently explored and which would probably open more space for real cooperation and perhaps less glamorous than just sending big ships in the, in the area, but uh, certainly very significant and very meaningful, including for the cooperation between Europe and India. Roger, how do you see the, the prospects for cooperation in concrete areas? Yeah, I mean, just a word about uh, trade. I mean, the trade uh, negotiations collapsed in 2013, 2014. Uh, what, we, what is on track uh, for this uh, weekend summit is really the hope that they're going to revive this with some framework for uh, reviving the, the trade negotiations uh, and also looking at uh, connectivity uh, as well as investment-related uh, issues. I think on the uh, Indo-Pacific security, I mean, it's really the two levels. I, mean, I think one is the deeper bilateral cooperation, which uh, France is already way ahead of uh, other European countries. Now India is uh, going to do more things with Britain. So one is the two major uh, security actors uh, in Europe uh, do more with both France and Britain uh, at the bilateral level. Uh, two, and vis-a-vis the Europeans, I mean, I think uh, Europe is still not a a large-scale security actor, but but there's a range of areas where uh, India can work with them. Uh, for example, uh, EU's approach to uh, maritime security in this part of the world, where India uh, can work with Europe on a range of issues uh, to strengthen regional capacities, especially of the smaller island states. And then there is the, uh, the question of uh, some of the European missions. I mean, Europe as a collective has some missions in this part of the world. Uh, We've not engaged those in the past. Uh, We can do uh, more uh, with the EU as a a collective. And then, of course, there are other issues uh, on the digital side, which is uh, both economic and security, where Europe has been trendsetter in setting new norms for regulating the new uh, digital sector. There, I think uh, there is a lot that India, uh, India has already, I mean, I think largely a lot of imitation, if you will, uh, or replicating the European model of regulating the the digital economy that is different from the the East uh, Chinese and the Russian model and the American model. So somewhat of a middle path between those two. So that I think there is more that we can do. And then there is the the cybersecurity area where uh, there is, which is going to be the big challenge uh, where I think India and the EU uh, can can work together uh, in the days ahead. Primarily, I would agree with Frederick is the near term is on the maritime side. Uh, and it's mostly will be with France and Britain, while the others chipping in uh, to a to a lesser extent. Great, thanks. Maybe Manisha, we can go to you for the last word on what you think can be achieved and and, and what you hope will come out of the EU India Leader Summit. Thanks, Mark. I think I can only just reiterate what Frederick and Raja said. I think trade and climate and tech connectivity and security are sort of the biggest things on the agenda. 
I think security is in general a thing that is picking up in Europe, that it sees that it has security interests in the Indo-Pacific. I hope that the EU Indo-Pacific strategy that was sort of announced now and will be launched in September, hopefully, has India as one of the major partners in it, which I think would send very important signals to India and give this partnership weight. But I think apart from that, everything has been said by Raja and Frederico. Okay, well, we'll see what happens in the weeks ahead. And I think we're all going to be watching how the COVID situation unfolds in India and hoping that somehow the government will manage to to get on top of it and that this human tragedy can be uh, averted or at least lessened. There's one thing left to do on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. What's on your bookshelf at the moment, Raja? Just uh, finished reading uh, Quinn Slobodian's uh, The Globalist, End of Empire and the Birth of uh, Neoliberalism. Quite a fascinating study, and I think we generally associate globalization and the international order as largely American projects. But this book lays out the European origins of neoliberalism, globalization, and international order that have been associated with the uh, so-called Geneva School uh, and the German order liberal. So uh, it's really take you back for the last 100 years uh, the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and to see how the effort to stitch together a market that cuts across uh, national boundaries was such a uh, driving force uh, in the thinking about globalization. I think Slobodian also lays it out that uh, globalization was not just about dismantling the state, but it is also about encasing capital uh, within a set of global institutions and international law. And this, in turn, uh, gives a great perspective on how, on the EU and the WTO as supranational projects. So this book was published about uh, two and a half years ago, but it's a fascinating uh, political and legal insights into the origins of uh, globalization. Thank you very much. What's on your bookshelf, Frédéric? India powers the lead by Sanjay Baru. <laughs> uh, and this is a, a book which really tries to capture the, uh, the changes brought about in this elite, culturally, socially, and otherwise by the arrival to power of uh, the BJP and Modi. And this is a fascinating account on how, in a way, India is changing also on that side. Okay, and what about you, Manisha? Another India book, uh, it's India's China Challenge by Anand Krishnan, which was published September last year. And it's about basically looking at India from a Chinese perspective and understanding the complex relationship between the two. And I think this is a very important and timely thing to do, especially here in Europe. Okay, and I'm going to recommend a book called The COVID Consensus by a friend of mine called Toby Green, which is a book looking at the new politics of global inequality that have come out of the crisis. If you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, please do let your friends and acquaintances know about it by tweeting about it, writing about it on your social media page or ours, but above all, by heading to whatever platform you've used to download the podcast on and giving us a positive review and hopefully a five-star rating as well. We will put links up to all the publications that we've mentioned on our website, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcast. But for now, from Frédéric Grar, Raja Mohan, Manisha Reuter, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Lucy Halpenthal, and our editor this week is Annie Syshek. <laughs> <laughs>